Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and particularly to the students in my American Lit class. So uh, this is going to be a slight deviation from my normal approach because what I'm doing is I'm moving part of my lectures that I would normally do in class uh, online here huh, on YouTube. And I thought uh, to make it available to my students because we're going to have to be Zooming for the interactive parts of the class. And I just thought it'd be easier this way. And I thought, hey, as long as I'm doing it, why not make these lectures available to everybody. So this is a background for a American lit literature course that focuses on 1900 uh, up to, you know, sort of more contemporary times. And so the, the background I'll be giving is sort of a quick, uh, you know, sort of relative to American history, a bizarrely fast uh, move through the origins of the United States up until the major changes that occur around the turn of the century, just a convenient date. And so this will be the background that then um, hopefully helps students understand and appreciate and become involved in the literature that theoretically should speak to everyone, or at least many of us, because, you know, we're here in America and this is our culture and our history and our literature. Um, so um, the thing that I like to focus on to try and help people sort of get their minds around American cultural history, which it informs, of course, all kinds of American history, uh, is that there's sort of four major influences that have to be taken into account. And they're, they're quite distinct and quite different. And it is kind of the collision reinforcing conflicts between these four elements that have produced uh, sort of major aspects of American history and certainly key features of American cultural history. And so pretty straightforward, uh, not, not too difficult to work this out. And I don't think this is terribly controversial. It's certainly an oversimplification, of course, but, you know, you only have so much time and it's an American lit class. So, um, but first you have sort of the elite of the country. And, you know, these would be the people like Washington, Jefferson, Adams. It's the, it's the kind of, you know, Thomas Paine. It's these, um, the, the ruling elite, the early governors of many of the, of the colonies that were coming over from England, um, the founding fathers. And what's significant about them is, A, they were almost entirely Eurocentric. They were looking to England in particular, but also to uh, the greater European world as the foundation of identity, history, understanding, politics, everything. Everything looked back to Europe. Second, they were educated in the classical Enlightenment style. Even someone like uh, Benjamin Franklin, who was an autodidact and sort of an outlier in a lot of this, you know, even in he acquired, because he looked around, he said, ah, oh, this is one of the distinctive features of the people who are sort of leading things. They have this peculiar kind of education. Um, he was not raised that way because he wasn't, he wasn't elite in any way. He sort of worked his way up from being, um, a, you know, a journeyman pr printer to becoming, you know, one of the great intellectual thinker, political figures, just, you know, unbelievable life uh, in American history. Um but, you know, he recognized the importance of the classical education and got major portions of that for himself because he, he saw this as a key component of participating in the political and intellectual life of his country. 
Now, again, this is sort of, you know, to shorthand it, this is the classical enlightenment. That's not entirely true, but it's basically the classical enlightenment view. You read the Greek classics, you read the Roman classics, you read a bunch of Cicero, you um, you try to understand uh, the nature of, of the natural sciences, which was then called natural philosophy. Um, and so even though you have Washington and Jefferson, who are primarily, you know, agrarian and sort of more southern Virginia, this kind of area, and you have um, Adams, who's, you know, <clears throat> more sort of the Yankee background, they shared this sort of, uh, for all their differences, this sort of elite educational outlook that informed all kinds of aspects. And so when you read the founding document, you know, famously the American constitution, we hold these truths to be self-evident, all men are created equal, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, all that kind of thing. Um, this is like sort of the enlightenment document par excellence. I mean, this is what they're describing their writing. And the early presidents all came from this sort of tradition. This is why Jackson, when you get to Andrew Jackson, he's such an, again, he's like the first person who's not from that. Um, that's why he was such a shock. I mean, many reasons he was a shock, but that was one of them. He was sort of an outsider to that intellectual outlook. <clears throat> but it's important to remember that this, I mean, we're talking one person, not even 1% of the population. I mean, this is just nobody. They didn't represent anybody but themselves, and they just saw themselves as the natural leaders. And so they led, and they had power, and they had money, and, you know, they had positions of influence, and they gave those positions to other people like themselves. And so, you know, extraordinary amount of influence by a very small number of people who had an incredibly strange sort of educational worldview and outlook. And that has been one of the that that created, for instance, like you know, the Constitution it doesn't mention God hardly ever. You know, it only mentions it in the you know freedom of religion and the Bill of Rights, and against you know the founding of a state religion. I mean, it's a which is crazy for the time. I mean, at this time, almost all documents of of significance had references to. I mean, they were it was just embedded in the culture. But you know, at that highest level, elite level. They were much more in the French Enlightenment tradition and trying to, you know, work those sorts of things out. So step one or group one to th keep in mind was this sort of elite European Eurocentric Enlightenment sort of leaning educationally group that had um, influence far beyond any con concept of their actual numbers. <clears throat> Now, a second group, which is mixed, but they have a distinctive feature, which is several of the colonies were founded specifically for uh, religious purposes. And people, this is generally referred to as religious freedom, but it wasn't. It was freedom for those people to organize societies where everybody had to follow their religion. So it was sort of a religious enclave program. And so um, these groups were founded all over. You know, this was the classic pilgrims is, you know, they wanted to set up their religious sect. And so there was groups of, uh, you know, whole regions that were, you know, sort of, you know, specifically organized to reinforce, promote, educate, uh, enforce religious strictures of one sect or another sect or another group or another group. And so there, there was many. There wasn't one group. There are many different groups. But the, the important notion is that it was very. I mean, very like wow, incredibly religiously oriented. That was the point of everything. This was the new promised land, um, and this is where God is going to work out his his, you know, his promise to his people. And this is going to be a, a a golden place. And all all these sorts of stories and narratives come from. 
um, that form such an, a significant part of American hist historical narratives. And of course, the classics here is you look at the Cotton Mathers and you know the Cotton Mather. There's a bunch of Mathers. There's not just him, but his father, famous preachers, all the preacher letters, and just the continuing powerful uh, river of uh, religious influence, even. You know, that, you know, it comes down to us this day, but at that time, you have the whole group that was very religiously focused. And so when people say, oh, America was founded as a Christian country, meh, I mean, 25%, yes. 75%, not so much. And again, it's not that the other founding fathers weren't religious, it's just they weren't religious like that. Um, you know, Jefferson famously had his Bible where he had taken out all the miracles because he wanted to make it sort of co coherent with natural philosophy as he understood it. Right, and so that's a very different take on what religion means. Franklin, it's not clear what Franklin, if any, believed, if anything. Adam's very deeply religious man, so, but their view of even how religion functioned was much more influenced by Enlightenment tradition than something like the Puritans. Right, that 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 strain of Puritanism that runs uh, through American history. So you have the very strong religious group. You have the elite, like super elite. Uh, Enlightenment-focused, European-focused, uh, educated group. And there was some overlap between them. Um, <clears throat> and then you had uh, colonies like Pennsylvania and some of the Virginia colonies that were founded specifically for trade. They were corporations. Uh, and they were corporations that were run from England by the trade lords. So they were, it's not like this was, you know, wasn't it subtle or secret or anything? I mean, they were incorporated to make money from trade from the new world. That was their purpose. You know, just period. There, you know, this was the entire function. And so people say, oh, you know, Americans are just interested in making money. Well, part of our history was that we were founded by people whose primary, primary sole specific reason for being here was to make money from trade and that that trade, of course, with England and was run by people called the trade lords because this is what they existed for. And again, they also looked to Europe, by the way, because they looked to Europe as the source of money and banking and finance and markets and everything like that. So this is, you know, you're looking back overseas to, uh, you know, that's where everything is happening. This is sort of an outpost where you're going to sort of make money. So that was the, you know, exploitable third world of its day kind of, kind of vision. And so <clears throat> that sort of financial focus and locus uh, has been around for since day one trade. You know, New York is, was New Amsterdam. I mean, it was a trade city founded uh, in part and in, in large part to facilitate trade. I mean, it was a port city. This is what we're, what we're doing, banking and trade. Um, what do they do today? Banking and trade, right? <laughs> some things change, some things haven't changed that much. And so there's this very strong mercantile trade financial grounding in the very fabric of the understanding of the country, what it's for, how we're supposed to interact with it, and, and what we're doing. And so those three are, you know, obvious and, and pretty clear, but I think the fourth one that's often overlooked is the uh, African-American slave community. Um, and what's interesting to me about that is, you know, large population, a coherent population because they were isolated and segregated. Normally, if, you know, couple of hundred years go by, you're mixing and all this, but because, you know, of, you know, legal and then cultural barriers to miscegenation, although a lot of miscegenation, of course, happens, um, the community has maintained a fairly stable 
uh, and coherent cultural structure that goes right back to its roots in West Africa. I've got actually a couple of whole lectures on this, but the, basically the idea is here's a group of people who do not share either of those other three cultural traditions. This is not why they're here. They did not voluntarily come here. Um, you know, they're not participating certainly in the Enlightenment culture because uh, they're not allowed to be educated, generally speaking, um, you know, and so on. So it's, it's there's a clear divergent population. And one of the th things that it's going to become really important in the literature that we read after, you know, the turn of the century is that it's the emergence of these voices that really sort of uh, enrich and expand the American cultural and artistic heritage, I mean, to a, to a phenomenal degree. It's really when we start to look away from um, our European heritage and discover something new and you know, uniquely American. It's those voices rising up that kind of brings it to us. <clears throat> now, the fifth voice that people often ask about or are interested in <clears throat> is the Native American traditions that were here. Um, and unfortunately, they just had not zero influence. That would be not right, but not a lot of influence. Um, and for several reasons, one, uh, actively oppressed, uh, you know, if you're going to steal land from people, you, you tend to just like, let's ignore and pretend like they didn't exist. That was one. Two, um, people talk about the Native American culture. There was not a Native American culture in the United States. There were, you know, hundreds of languages, not thousands of languages, massive uh, diversity of cultural lifestyles, of narrative tales, of poetic traditions, of musical traditions, of artistic traditions. I mean, they were so—it was not a coherent cultural whole that might have had a better chance of holding up under this massive, you know, sort of wave of foreigners coming in. It was an unbelievably diverse uh, system of interconnected but often unrelated um, you know, cultures and, and dynamics. I mean, so this, this is part of the cr criminal uh, element of, of the repression and destruction of Native American culture is that it was so vast, varied, and rich. It's just, you know, it, it's just like burning down a museum, essentially. It's, it's you know, this incredible collection of, again, languages and, and, and ways of living, everything from nomadic uh, cultures to settled agrarian cultures to more warlike cultures to fishing cultures to, you know, desert I mean, it just... Every different kind of niche had several, uh, often major groups who were living different, varied lifestyles and had developed these amazing and different cultures, which even today is very little understood and studied. And I think it's a vastly overlooked area of archaeology and historical scholarship because it's just it's so vast and rich that it's hard to even do uh, slight justice to it. But, we, you know, we, we could give it a little more of a go, I would say. So I would love to say there's been this huge influence from that, and there has been some influence, but <clears throat> man, not not what you would think given, you know, the fact that these small group of foreigners are coming to a very large area that has a lot of, you know, native population there. Um, and it turns out that over time that has just been uh, eroded to an extraordinary degree. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it is, you don't want to overlook that, but it is, you know, it just does not have the impact you would think until, you know, more recently. Uh, but anyway, so the major four groups, again, they're the sort of classical uh, French Enlightenment looking 
you know, founding father groupy type people who are writing things like the Federalist Papers and the Constitution. Uh, you have the, the religious tradition. Again, you can look to the Cotton Mather texts. Uh, that that are coming out, and then you have the you know the sort of business tradition, which not shockingly has not produced a huge amount of uh, literary works, particularly early on, um, but it does give that huge impulse and impetus to trade and mercantilism that is central to the U.S. understanding of ourselves and always has been. <clears throat> so, traditionally, of course, you have the Revolutionary War, and then you have the Civil War as like the big things that you deal with. And in the earlier American lit class, that's, you know, certainly central as you look at those of these, you know, shaping cultural institutions and moments, and, and it, they really are, there's no doubt about it. But for the purposes of this class, I would like to focus on, you know, one aspect of the Civil War that was critical to what is about to happen. And as that is, um, as the war wore on, as what was supposed to be a short, quick war, which both sides thought that they could maybe win without too much trouble, ended up being a longish war, sort of a preamble to what happened in World War I, um, it became an industrial war, a war of who could produce the most stuff fastest and get it places and get men to places where they could be shot sort of in sort of bloody charges up, you know, defended areas and cannons and, you know, trail movement is beginning to become of absolute crucial importance. That spur, this was already going on. You sort of had regional banks were being formed and like the Erie Canal and, you know, roads are being improved. Trade is expanding. You have the Mississippi River, of course, a key in this. <clears throat> but the war really sped this up. It also had the tendency to begin to integrate the West, um, into a more coherent relationship with the earlier states. So, you know, like Washington State's only been around for what 1889, I think. So it's 130 years. So it wasn't after the Civil War. It was you know that it became integrated. So you had territories. Of course, this was was you know kicked off part of the Civil War. Is what do you do when these territories become states? But so you had these outlying areas, like in 1900, Nevada had a population of <clears throat> Americans, of course, they didn't count the natives, of about, I think it was some crazy number, like, you know, 13,000. So, I mean, these areas are big and they don't have a lot of settlers or colonists in them or however you want to think about them. But the, the Civil War really said, oh, you know, we need those resources. We need those people. We need to start making this coherent. And so it accelerated this and it particularly accelerated the industrialization. And you get these crazy numbers where from 1880 or 1880 or 1860, anyway, in this incredibly short period of time from like Chicago in 18, say 70 or 80, I think, you know, has a population of about 180,000 uh, people, you know, 25 years later, 30 years later, it has a population of over a million, right? So you have these cities that are just booming. And part of this is, that spur to industrial industrialization, mechanization, the growth of trade, the growth of the rail network, all of this sort of feeds back in this loop. And there's just this vast explosion and urbanization of American life. So, you know, if you go back to something like 1860, there's, you know, uh, you know, about 6 million people, uh, I believe, living in cities in the United States. And there's about I think it's about 22, 23 million people who are living um, on farms. So basically uh, rural, right? You know, I'm sure there's mix in between, but, you know, rough figures. Also, there's no clear census data from this. So these are estimates. But basically, most of the people, two-thirds of the population or more, are living uh, agrarian life. 
And about 6 million people are living in, you know, urban cities like Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. <clears throat> By 1900, we're just talking, you know, one lifetime later, not even a full lifetime later, uh, the, po the country's population has doubled amazingly, right? And there's, I think it's more than double, actually. And, and, and you have about 50 million um, people living in agrarian environments. And so that, that agrarian population has doubled. You're like, wow, look at that. A lot of people living uh, in agrarian rural settings. But the city population went from, again, like 6 million urban populations to like 54 million in the same amount of time. <clears throat> so while the rural population was doubling, the urban population was increasing by like eight or nine times. And again, these are estimates, but nonetheless, what you realize is there's this just unprecedented boom. And by the time you hit 1900, you know, now we're really rolling. The urbanization is underway. You are starting to get uh, waves of immigration that have been coming in before, but, you know, they're starting to really come in because all of this industrialization really needs manpower. I mean, it's a desperate need for manpower. And so immigration is very much encouraged and the cities are booming. And what's important about that is none of the American traditions were urban, right? The Enlightenment tradition is more, um, you know, is associated with Paris and, of course, the, the courts of Europe and all this. But those were not urban in the sense of industrial banking centers. Those were collections. Those were nobles gathered. I mean, these were uh, highly sophisticated, highly educated, <clears throat> often noble-associated or noble-themselves thinkers who just weren't, didn't make sense in a modern context, particularly in the United States where you don't have nobility or in theory, in practice, of course, the Washingtons and Jeffersons functioned that way. But, you know, it wasn't a hereditary system. So <clears throat> we didn't have that noble class that would create that structure. And so what you end up with is this, this new thing emerges that none of our earlier systems are prepared to deal with. I'm still not sure we know how to deal with it. It's, it's you know, we did not have, uh, you know, we didn't have urban elites because we didn't have urban the religious uh, groups that were coming, they wanted to set up cities and towns, but they were not urban people um, by and large. They were not necessarily rural people, but they were lower class peasanty type people who were fleeing, not entirely, but this was this was commonly that. The uh, elites were the landed elites. You know, this was Jefferson and Washington had land and slaves. This is what made them rich. This is what made them powerful. This is what allowed them to maintain their lifestyles. Um, you know, Franklin is probably the first voice of, of the city's people, but he is hugely influenced by the tradition in which he, which he was founded, in which he grew up, in which he admired these people who were up there, and that's what he wanted to achieve. And so this uh, dynamic change was not really precedent, and no one knew what to do with it except the mercantile class, right? Because they're like trade. Trade is good. Grow, right? And so those, that vision, that force really began to dominate in the American cultural psyche, not necessarily in the arts, but where you really see it is in somewhere like the works of Henry James, who is so opposed to it. He's not opposed to it since they think it's wrong. He just thinks those aren't great values, that making money and pursuing wealth and all that. You you can see this, you know, in the already in the late 1800s, you have people writing against this. Mark Twain writes about this, uh, you know, this, this notion of like, hey, are we just here to make money? Well, when you have this sort of revelation uh, or revolution of industrialization and technological advance that happens so quickly, 
uh, yeah, it's noon. They're not ready for it. Then nobody, nobody expected it. It wasn't planned. It just kind of happened. Um, and so, again, if you read a book like The Ambassadors by, by Henry James, which I'll talk about in, in more in a second, it's, I mean, this is core to it. It's like, oh, this world has happened, and the ambassador is coming out of that world. He's sort of, again, ambassador, a spokesman for people who are theoretically involved in it and all the tensions of that along with the cultural history of Europe. And, you know, this is the milieu that, that uh, Henry James is trying to think his way through. And so you hit 1900, and wow, you get this new mercantile urbanization, and the forces of business that have always been here are all of a sudden like, wow, they are central, they are dominant, they are setting the paces, they are this, this is what's going on in America. Um, but it's still, I mean, while we're still looking to Europe, we're primarily an isolationist country. We don't participate a lot in world affairs. You know, if you said who are the important, you know, countries in the world, the United States would be around there maybe. But we're going to be, you know, it's not, we're not Prussia. We're not France or, or uh, England, of course, or even the Italian states. Or, you know, the, the European countries are going to figure large. The Ottoman Turkish empires over there, they're sick man of Europe. But, hey, they're, you know, they're doing stuff. You've, you know, China is figuring, you know, all this stuff is still going on. And people are like, oh, U.S. is out there. Yeah, they're growing. They're doing stuff. But, you know, basically they're this isolated, you know, lost colony that nobody knows what to do with. And then World War I happens, and you, the, the impetus of this is, or the influence of this is hard to uh, incorporate into our minds because we are the children of what happened. Um, so a couple of things happen simultaneously. One, America already had become one of the leading industrial powers in the world, but nobody had really noticed. A few people had, but not that many people. It was sort of a known, not a secret, it just not a lot of people are thinking about this, and most people would just say, oh, well, of course, France or England or one of those countries, sure, uh, Prussian state or the German states in, in conglomerate. And nope, turned out the United States was coming on fast. And then World War I happens, and basically Europe said, we want to buy everything you can produce as fast as you can produce it forever. And here's all our money. And so what was already, you know, a growing industrializing economy, it just goes crazy. Um, and two, well, lots of significant things come out of this, but two for the literature they're going to be looking at. Um, one is millions of Americans go overseas, millions of Americans who are not from Henry James's class, millions of Americans who are not the Jeffersons and the Washingtons or even the Franklins go to Europe. They go to different parts of Europe. They go for different amounts of time. They go, you know, mostly with the military. Some, you know, some people go as other attaches and other things like this, but mostly a bunch of regular, you know, drafted Americans go to Europe. And this is something that they never would have done. It's like beyond their wildest dreams. It would be like us going to Mars practically. And they just sort of see a new world. They see an incredibly transformed, you know, mind-expanding encounter with uh, the cultural heritage of, you know, the European tradition. Um, while, of course, killing people and blowing shit up, which isn't the best way to do that, I would admit, I'd say, but still... They were there before, they were there after the war. You know, it was just, wow, everybody's mind was just blown. And significantly, uh, it made America a participant in world events. And then we immediately draw back from that after the war. But it was this huge intellectual change that our, some of our leaders started thinking, hey, maybe we should be involved in, in world events. Maybe we have an important role to play in, 
in the world now. We're not just a sort of former colony of England. We have our own you know, presence that we should really push out. We're an equal of the great powers. Perhaps we're even a great power, right? And so the debate in the United States gets kicked off. That is like, do we want to be a great power? Should we participate in the world? You know, how should we participate in the world? Before this was there, but much less, to a, to a much less degree. So you get a lot of Americans who get exposed to a lot of culture, and you get the great migration inside of the United States. It was already underway. So you have into the Civil War and Reconstruction, which was sort of, you know, how do you impose slavery without the institution of slavery? You know, Jim Crow, lynchings, the whole, you know, sort of uh, panoply nightmare of, of Reconstruction and reestablishing white dominance in, a, in, in, in areas that are often predominantly African-American, right? In, in various parts of the South, the population was, they were in, you know, they were the majority, so theoretically they should have taken over and ruled and been the mayors and governors and this sorts of things. But, um, you know, that's, we're not going to let that happen. Um, and so all kinds of means were found to, to keep that from, from taking place. <clears throat> so um, as the North booms, and as this incredible demand starts flowing in from Europe, now again, the migration was underway before that, but once the industrialization around the war comes in, boy, we're talking big time move. About, again, census data, tough to track here, somewhere between five and six million African Americans move from the rural South to the more industrial North. This is a dramatic, I mean, huge population shift. So there's something like five-ish percent of the population of the United States, maybe eight percent. I'm going, of course, you know, you have to figure out what the number is. What was the total population? It's not entirely clear. How many moved? Not entirely clear. But, you know, conservatively, five to eight percent of the U.S. population upped stakes and moved. And they didn't just up stakes and move, but they moved from one environment, which is to say rural, um, generally impoverished uh, area, to in Southern, you know, climatologically, culturally, historically, to another, and I mean, just transforming. I mean, to, to move from a, a Southern rural environment to a Northern urban environment um, is, you know, mind-blowing, right? That this is this is a titanic revolution in, in the way you're living and every, I mean, just, you're just changed practically everything about your life. <clears throat> and so that drive for economic opportunity and the recruiting industrial centers were recruiting because they desperately needed men because, of course, what, four or five million, I believe. <clears throat> I don't remember the total number. Anyway, several million Americans had just been shipped overseas, so the labor shortage all of a sudden. So demand is huge. You're sending soldiers overseas. And so you get this huge out-migration uh, from the rural south, African-American population, also whites, by the way. This wasn't just African-Americans, but significantly African-Americans in massive numbers uh, to the industrial north. And boom, we are off and running. Now, for the first time, large numbers of that group, remember I said you've got the four major groups, have access to uh, resources, education, newspapers, uh, where they can write, where they can read, where they can um, begin to express themselves. And boom, now we're talking. And so this is now we're kicking off the Harlem Renaissance. Now we're kicking off, um, you know, the response to this. You know, Faulkner, of course, sort of meditates on this transformation and, you know, what, half, three quarters of his works, like the, the move from the tradition rural to the urban. The, uh, you know, all of these sorts of themes are just central to his works. But if you want to just read two books um, and that, that will let you see what kind of transformation takes place here, 
<clears throat> you can look at a work like, again, Henry James Ambassadors, because it's just so, it's like an encyclopedia of these issues, but it's from the old world view. He's writing from that educated, partitionate, uh, European looking. He actually lived in Europe for much of his life. Um, history to um, uh, Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer. And the, the, I mean, it's this mind blowing. And if you read these two works, you think, oh my gosh, they must have been written 100, 200, 300 years apart, but they weren't. Um, Miller wrote uh, Tropic of Cancer, you know, 28, 29, 30. Um, I think it was published in 33 for the first time, but I think he was working on it like 29 and 30, and then it took a while to get it published. Uh, James writes The Ambassadors, what, 1903, 1902, 1903, takes him a while, a very long novel, um, to, to, to write. And so you go, oh, this is 20 years or 25 years here. But the gap of worldview is, you know, like the Grand Canyon. I mean, totally in every way. You go, wow, are these people from the same country? The answer is in some ways no, because the transformation that took place in Henry James's lifetime to where you get to Henry Miller, and they're both sort of exemplary figures of this, is so phenomenal that it's just uh, amazing to read them in contrast. And so where we want to start um, in this in this lit class, and, and the first book we're going to read, by the way, I may as well just mention this for everybody, is, is Mumbo Jumbo by Ishmael Reed, which is just hilarious and wonderful and insightful. And it's just one of those works that has a certain uh, just, just rightness. I mean, it's just a brilliant, brilliantly insightful and uplifting and just wonderful work in so many ways, stylistically adventurous. And, um, <clears throat> but it explores so many of these themes of what happens when all of these worlds collide. Um, what does it mean for history and for the future and for culture? So this is the kickoff point for the class. And what happens now is you get this massive industrialization, um, and urbanization and migration all simultaneously going on. You get the war, which sort of expands everybody's mind and like, wow, we're in this new world, like lots of rural people still, but you know, there's this new urban world that is becoming much more central in this sort of, um, you know, not just urban, but intellectually different and technologically different and, you know, mercantile worldview. And then it all falls apart in the Great Depression. And then you get the, whatever, call it a decade of the Great Depression from 1930 to 1940, and then you get World War II. And so in this bizarre run of time from like 1900, America's urbanizing and uh, is, is becoming to play a part in the world, to 1945, the U.S. comes out as the leading industrial basically the leading power in the world. You know, maybe the Soviet Union is there, but, you know, it's it's the U.S. and the Soviet Union. I mean, we've taken over the world. We are the intellectual, cultural, technological, military, financial center of the world. And in 1900, no one is predicting this. People are not saying, oh, well, yeah, the U.S. is about to turn into... No, it's this whole series of amazing, mind-blowing, mind-altering events, one after the other. That means that someone who was born in rural Kansas in, say, 1910, 
might end up being a colonel in the military and serving in China and being an advisor to like, you know, Chinese warlords. I mean, like, that's crazy as a representative of the most powerful nation on earth. Right. I mean, just like, wow, like, boom, mind blown. And so the literature we're going to be exploring here, you know, Steinbeck with the internal migrations of the Great Depression and uh, those kinds of transformation. We're looking a bit of Mark Twain, you know, mumbo jumbo, uh, Baldwin. You know, we're looking at these writers who are exploring this entirely new world that is created in the midst of this uh, historical, cultural, and political turmoil that basically from 1900 to 1945 created an entirely new country. <clears throat> we still had those old traditions, but those, all those currents now had to get, go through this blender that no one was really ready for, no one really understood, no one had prepared for because they just kind of happened. So as we read along and, and think about the major influences and voices and insights that we're encountering, it's always good to keep in mind that most of these writers, pretty much all these writers, are writing in this strange context. And the one reason I love Ishmael Reed is because he's, he's a more contemporary writer, but he's reflecting on this time and he sets his novel uh, in this time and really does a brilliant job of sort of capturing the sense of like the madness uh, and the cultural importance and the and the forces that are at work. So, lecture number one, just, I mean, obviously that was a whirlwind tour through a couple of hundred years of American history, but I think if you keep in mind that we've had these four disparate um, forces at work in, in American history, from the Enlightenment forces to the religious, very strong, powerful religious, to the mercantile, and then the African-American, which is really West African traditions, uh, that in right around 1900, you know, pick a random date, all these forces, you know, they take time to develop and they take time to express themselves. But right around 1900, convenient, they just start to ramify. And then World War I is just like match on the flame and then, I mean, match on the, on the tender and then the Great Depression and then boom, World War II. And by the time you come out in 1945, 1946, the world has just been transformed. And one last note on this, one way you can think about this is when you read a poet like Robert Frost, you know, he, he had been to Europe, he was incredibly literate and educated. You know, he's, everybody likes him, but he's writing, you know, back in time. He's writing backwards. His, his poetry looks to a world that is going away. It's a lost world. It's a, it's a membrane. This is something like uh, Yasunari and Kawabata in uh, Japan says, says this about his own work. He says, all I write are elegies to a world that's leaving or gone. I mean, he, that, I think it was part of his Nobel Prize uh, speech. But um, Frost is doing the same thing. And part of the reason people like Frost and why it resonates is it has this sort of nostalgic overtones from the world that actually just is no longer around. Right, it's just and goodbye. Right, that that's then we're waving goodbye out the window, um, and so those sorts of uh, forces, those literary and cultural forces, they don't just disappear overnight, but they fade as this new world comes in and these new voices start to speak to us. And so that's where we want to start with an exploration of these new voices that start to rise up right about the turn of the century. Uh, to speak to these growing and changing cultural dynamics. So thank you. And there'll be um, about nine more of these uh, as, as the course goes along. So thank you.